you have your Bible, we can start. We're going to jump in chapter 5. And we're going to look at these statements, these pronouncements of what Jesus says, who the blessed people are. Now, let's just by way of review, let me remind you that we have been uh, talking about a couple themes that kind of are the overarching, if we're in the helicopter looking down and we get the bird's eye view, these are some of the themes we see. As we look at the whole sermon first, a couple weeks ago, we talked about righteousness, the idea that Jesus is calling us to not relax on any of the commandments. He's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that if we relax on any of the commandments, Jesus would say that we are least in the kingdom. And then he goes on to describe how there is a superior righteousness that's commanded from every one of us. So this is what we are called to as a church, to strive, to work, to uh, take hold of that life that Christ has given to us. And it shows itself out as we walk in obedience. But there's another theme, and this is what we talked about last week. It's not only righteousness, living in accordance with the revealed will of God. It is also this idea of blessedness. That when we live in accordance to the righteous calling that God puts on our lives, we experience the blessing that God has for us. And that word blessing, what we talked about last week, has uh, the idea of happiness. We're going to talk about this a little more deeply. But it's amazing that we see in Scripture that God is actually really concerned about your happiness. When He created the world, He, he created a good world. He kept saying, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then He created people. And it says the first thing he did to those people was that he blessed them. He was interested in blessing them. He was interested in their good, their eternal good. And so he was interested in blessing creation. And then Jesus comes. After years and years and years of the people of God only ever deserving the curse, Jesus comes and he stands up in front of the people and he declares, blessed. Again, this word of blessedness, happiness. Here is true happiness. I think that's, uh, that's really important for us. That all of God is for us. Those who are in Christ, God is for us. And that means that He is concerned with real, deep, sustained happiness. He's chosen to offer happiness to the world. And the way He's channeling that happiness is through His Son, Jesus Christ is now the only way through which we can come back and receive the blessedness that God has promised us. So this is what God's doing. He's calling us to righteousness, and now it's all going to happen through Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, we experience the blessedness. And he's talking about this this happiness. And there's this important thing I want us to understand. You ever heard this, this saying? I've heard it. I think I understand what's behind it. I'm not sure... I agree with it, or maybe I have a little bit of a problem with the saying, but the, the saying goes a little bit like this. God's not concerned about your happiness. He's concerned about your holiness or righteousness. As if, maybe if we understand that rightly, it could be, it could be fine. But, but it almost seems like that statement pits two things against each other. It's like you only get one or the other. Like you either got to be holy, but if you're holy, you got to say goodbye to happiness. Or you got to be happy, and if you're happy, you're not going to have any holiness because you're going to find your happiness in things that don't make you holy. Jesus doesn't see that division. The dichotomy is not there. Jesus perfectly marries those two ideas and says, I got a message of righteousness. And that message of how to live in accordance with God's will is how you are most supremely blessed, happy. 
It's not different. There's not two things. It's not a choice. Jesus is saying, here is the channel to true happiness, and it is through the life of righteousness that Jesus calls us to. This is kind of all helping us get the context as we come to the sermon, specifically as we come to these beatitudes. The word beatitude is a simple Latin word that just means blessing. From the Latin beatus, these are the blessings. And so we come up, and I want to read the verse that we're going to talk about this morning, verse 3, Matthew 5, verse 3. If you have your Bibles, that's where you are. It says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to unpack three concepts because I think there's three main things we need to understand about this. And then we're going to spend a lot of time applying this. Unpack blessing, what that means. We've kind of done that a little bit. We're going to look at poor in spirit, what that means. And then we're going to look at the kingdom. And we're going to kind of race through that to make sure we understand what's being said here. And then we're going to apply this to our lives. Let's start with this concept of blessing. The word blessing from the Greek is a word makarios. It was a common Greek word used frequently even before Jesus came. In the ancient Greek poetry, that word would come up. The ancient Greek poet Homer, you've probably read the Iliad or the Odyssey, he used this word makairios to describe someone who's wealthy or rich. It was the attitude of someone who had everything that they wanted. They weren't discontent. They weren't beggarly looking around for other things. A makairios was a Greek word that meant wealthy, you had what you wanted, you were satisfied. Plato, another Greek philosopher, used the same word, makairios, to describe someone who was successful in their business. They were wealthy, they had done what they needed to do in business, and they had got what they wanted, they had a sort of victory, and so they were called makairos. The poets used it, it was a Greek word common to the people uh, in the uh, some of the ancient writings of the Greeks, they would describe their gods as being makairios because they weren't affected by human tragedy or human suffering. They were detached from that. They were uh, unaffected by the things of the world, and this, so they were described as makairios. This word was a common word. It was used regularly. And here Jesus comes on the scene, speaking the language of the people, and he uses this word makairios, except he's going to give it not the same exact meaning as how the Greeks used it. He's going to give it a deeper spiritual meaning here. Jesus says, Makairios are the poor in spirit. And what he's saying is there's a, a sense of deep satisfaction, a sense of contentment, soul contentment, deep, real, legitimate contentment from the soul in, in, in being poor in spirit. Makairios. To be Makairios is to enjoy a slice of heaven before you get there. It's to live on earth as if you're enjoying the blessings of heaven, that they're guaranteed to be yours. You feel like the businessman, like there's a spiritual wealth. You, you feel like there's a success that you didn't earn necessarily, but was granted to you. You feel satisfied, contented. Uh, there's a, a blessedness, a joy. And this is the happiness that Jesus is describing when he's just talking about the, the idea of being Blessed. So keep that in your mind as we think about what it means to be blessed. Deep soul satisfaction. Happiness. Not like the world sees happiness, but how Jesus is seeing it. Real joy. 
spontaneous for what Jesus has done for us. Let's look at the second concept he talks about. Blessed are who? The poor in spirit. Now in the New Testament, there are different words that people would write, different New Testament writers would use to describe someone who's poor. In Luke chapter 21, you are all familiar, I think, with the story of the widow. And what does she do? She has those two coins and she throws them in and she offers those and Jesus is looking. Well, the writer, Luke, when he's describing this woman, he uses a word in the Greek, it's penikros, to describe the poor. Here's a woman who has almost nothing, but she has something. Uh, the word penikros, poor, that was the Greek word, penikros, is to describe someone who's Poor, but not the lowest. You have almost nothing, but you got something. Pentecost is someone who's really low, but they still have something. In the instance of the lady with the two coins, she had two coins. But there was another word that was frequently used. It was used to describe beggars. It was used to describe someone absolutely destitute, abjectly poor, with nothing to offer, a completely and utterly bankrupt. That was the word takas. And that word is described in various ways to, like I said, someone who's beggarly, someone who has nothing. It comes from the root word, which means to cower or to shrink or to cringe, because the idea was, as a beggar, you're in the posture of a beggar, you're almost cowering before passerbys. Your only hope is an extended hand that maybe someone might be generous to you. But you have nothing. It's not that you have a couple coins to throw in the offering plate. This word means zero, nothing. It means I might die tomorrow because I don't have any more food to eat and I'm empty. But when Jesus is describing who the blessedness belongs to, he doesn't use Pentecost poor to describe someone who is mostly poor but has a little bit left. He uses Pentecost poor, which means he's describing someone who in their self-evaluation when they evaluate who they are, their capacities, their resources, their accomplishments, these people recognize they have nothing. They don't look in the mirror and put out their chest and boast in how strong they are. These are the people who look in the mirror and say, I have nothing. I've done nothing. I've accomplished nothing. I've earned nothing. I am completely dependent on the generosity of someone outside of me to survive. I have nothing, no abilities, no strengths of my own, no talents of my own. It is looking at all that God has called us to do, all that God has called us to be, and saying, I cannot. I don't have what it takes. I can't be who you've called me to be, God. I cannot do what you've called me to do. I don't have the inner resources. It is a posture of cowering humility, shrinking before God, and recognizing deep in our spirit, we are empty. And so he's saying that the Makarios people, the, the wealthy, the rich in spirit, those who are joyful and contented, and those who are experiencing the happiness of heaven on earth in the midst of whatever tragedy might be going on on earth, those people are the ones who when they look at themselves they see themselves as abjectly poor, as having nothing owning nothing, able to contribute nothing, in the position and posture of a beggar before God and people so that's the second concept and the third concept we need to understand is he says, well blessed are the poor in spirit why? for theirs is the kingdom of heaven 
In Matthew, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. In other gospels, the phrase kingdom of God is used. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience and he wanted to make sure not to offend them. And the Jews took the name of God very seriously. So Matthew doesn't call it the kingdom of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven, but he's referring to the same things. If you read through uh, other gospel writers, you see that they're talking about the same thing when he talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And what's interesting, in Mark 9, when Jesus is giving that example of how serious sin is, and he says, if you don't take sin seriously, if you're not gouging out eyes, chopping off hands, and he says, he makes kind of a, a very strong, brutal statement. If you don't deal with sin seriously, he says, you're not going to enter eternal life. And he makes another statement. He says the same thing. And then he makes the same statement in a different way. He says, you're not going to enter the kingdom. And so what we see, Jesus equates entering life and entering eternal life and having eternal life is the same as entering the kingdom. That those two things are the same. So when Jesus says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying theirs is salvation. These ones who are poor in spirit, these are the ones who have true salvation. These are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom when the kingdom comes. These are the ones who are right with God. These are the ones who are enjoying eternal life. So let's summarize exactly the meaning. We're just pulling out straight from these words what this meaning is. Here's what we get. The Makarios people. The joyful, satisfied, contented, the ones who enjoy real wealth that lasts forever, real happiness that's genuine. It's the people who are patakas, poor in spirit, who evaluate themselves as completely bankrupt and empty. And these people are the ones that Jesus says have eternal life. That is the mark on the soul of someone who is going to inherit the kingdom when the kingdom comes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Simple to understand, a lifetime to apply, right? So we're going to take the next few minutes here to unpack. I want to look at four takeaways for how this shapes us individually and as a church. Four takeaways from this reality that it is the poor in spirit, or we could say it this way, those who are completely humbled. Four takeaways that make us, help us understand how this fits into our lives, that those who are totally humble are the ones who experience the blessing of knowing that the kingdom is theirs. Here's takeaway number one. If you're a note taker, here we go. We can begin now. Number one, we are free to admit inability we are free you are free you have been freed by the statement to admit that you're frail you're free to admit that you don't have it all together you're free to admit that you are unable to do some of the things that god has called you to do see this is an interesting thing you grow up in in our culture and you are taught from the moment you're born whether it's from the society around you, the movies you watch, or the things you read, is that you have what it takes within you to figure this life out. I mean, you watch the Disney Channel for any time at all. You go in the, the movies that are coming out these days, and it's all about expressing yourself and doing it yourself and follow your dream and just put your mind to it. You can do whatever you want. It's like this magical phrase. I can do whatever I want. Just put my mind to it. As if that enables me now to do whatever I want. This is, this is crazy. It, but the underlying idea is that you have what it takes. The underlying idea is the world is trying to convince you that you have what it takes 
to do what you want into the world. And this idea can creep into the church, right? So we just, we got what it takes. We can do this. We can do whatever we want. We just need to put our mind to it. I can. We can. Let's do this. Nike slogan, right? Just do it. You got the resources. You got the strength. You got the capacity. Now let's put these things together and let's go for it because we got what it takes. And Jesus comes along and in one sweeping statement sets that whole idea aside. He does it in a single sentence. He says, no, nah, it's the poor in spirit. It's the one who, ones who recognize they can't. It's the ones who recognize they're empty. That's the mindset of the Christian. And that's the mindset of the church. Is that we say, we can't do this. Whatever's before us, we can't do. I remember reading about um, John Piper in his early days. He was asked to speak at a college campus. and He gets up front. He speaks about the Christian life. He shares the gospel. And he's um, powerful and at the end of the sermon, asks for questions, and there's a hand, of course, in the back that comes up, and, and the college student says something along the lines of, "So you're saying, you're saying, you're saying that Christianity is just a crutch, huh? Christianity is just a crutch to help you get through life. Isn't that right? The way you're describing it, it makes it sound like Christianity is just a crutch." And John Piper paused and, and looked at the student in the back and said. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's exactly it. And I would go so far even, let's take that further. It's not only a crutch, it's the ambulance, it's the gurney, it's the hospital, it's everything in between. We are not strong in our own strength, and Jesus is freeing us to admit that. If you have been someone who all your life you have been pressured to perform, pressure to live up to the standard, or maybe it's your own perfectionism that you put on yourself, and you want to make sure that you're good enough, strong enough, you have enough, well, here Jesus frees you and says, no, the way up is down, is by recognizing that you have nothing. It's, Jesus isn't saying, now become poor in spirit. He's saying, no, there's blessing in admitting and coming to the reality of knowing the truth about yourself. And the truth about yourself is that you are poor in spirit. Admit it. Why is it so hard for us sometimes to recognize this? We like to think that we have what it takes. But listen, all God's best people, all God's best servants, all throughout the Bible, are those who started with the idea of complete inability. I can't, is what they said. Moses, right? God comes to Moses. I'm going to use you to send and send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to be the one who brings the Israelites out. And he says, who am I? Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? A little bit later, he starts complaining. I, I can't speak. Uh, uh, who am I? I can't talk to Pharaoh. I don't have the... And, and God says, I made you that way. Now go. I made you unable to. But then I give you the ability with my strength so that when it happens, I get the glory and not you. It's a brilliant plan so that God is lifted up and we are humbled. Judges 6. Same thing happens to Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. You have to turn there, but if you want, you can. The angel of the Lord appears to him, to Gideon, says to him, Oh, Gideon, the Lord is with you, O oh, mighty man of valor. At this point, it's kind of funny. Gideon did nothing to earn that title. 
It's like God is advancing credit to him that he hasn't earned. Oh, mighty man of valor! And Gideon says to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? They were captive under Midian's reign. Verse 14, the Lord turns to Gideon and says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And what's Gideon's response? He says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How can I? Moses says, Who am I? And Gideon says, How can I? And this is the call of the poor in spirit. It's those who say, Who am I? That you would call me to go be a part of what you're doing in the world. How can I do anything that you've called me to do? This is utterly outside of my capacity. This is how the poor in spirit view themselves. It's those who have no ability in and of themselves to do what God has called them to do. When Peter encounters Jesus in the boat, and and Jesus has Peter go fishing after he fished all night, he's, he's done, he wants to give up, and Jesus has not tried one more time, and he catches so many fish, and almost sinks the boat, and then, remember Peter's response to that, he realizes God incarnate is in the boat with him, and he's terrified, and it says that he falls down at the feet of Jesus, at Jesus' knees, and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. These are people who are poor in spirit. And they're brought to being humbled before they're being useful. Moses says, who am I? Gideon says, how can I? Peter says, I don't deserve you to even be in my presence. Elizabeth said it when Mary came to visit her. You guys remember this? Elizabeth was so amazed that Mary, who was pregnant at the time with the Lord Jesus, Mary says, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why do I get this gift? Why do I get this grace of seeing the Lord Jesus in the womb? Why me? I don't deserve this. All God's people, before they're useful, have to come to this understanding that they are unable, that they don't deserve it, that they're poor in spirit. We are freed by this statement to admit complete inability. To be recognizing you don't have the resources. See, if you picture a beggar, I don't know if you've ever seen a beggar on the sidewalk checking his pockets and looking for change in the pockets or the clothing that he's wearing because he knows he's got nothing. Instead, what's the posture of a beggar? He's looking at her, his hands up. He's hoping that the generosity of someone outside him will be able to contribute to him. And this exactly is the posture of us if we're poor in spirit. It's not that we're looking within. Who's got the gifts around here? Who's got the strength here? Who's powerful enough to lead this thing? Who's got the, 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 the chops to be able to live this Christian life? It's not looking here at all. It's actually the complete opposite. It's being in the posture, humbled before God, in the posture of a beggar saying, we know none of us have it, but God does. And we're reaching out to Him and saying, We are completely and totally dependent on the generosity of someone outside of us. And so every morning you you wake up and we say, I can't live this life. I can't be the husband I'm called to be. I can't be the father I'm called to be. I can't be the friend I'm called to be. I can't be the witness I'm called to be unless you help me, God. I'm poor. And there's such freedom in recognizing that you're poor. We stop looking inwardly to help. 
We look away from ourselves. We have nothing to commend ourselves to God. We do not rely on our own abilities. We do not rely on our own talents. We do not rely on our education. We do not rely on our intellect. We do not rely on any achievements we've made, any systems we've built, any businesses we've started. We don't look to any of this stuff, any talents we may have been given by God. None of this is anything that we look to. We don't look to our rituals that we do as a church. We don't look to the positions we have. We say with Paul, I consider everything I've done, everything I've ever committed my life to aside from Christ is rubbish, nothing. I bring nothing to the table here. Jesus would say it in a way that absolutely offends us in the modern American world. He would say this in Luke 14, 26. Listen to these strong words. He says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, listen to this, brothers and sisters, and even his own life. What a strong statement. He cannot be my disciple. Hate in this context isn't talking about you loathe someone. Jesus is saying you've got to hate your own life to be able to be my disciple. Now let's talk about what that word means. Hate doesn't mean that I loathe someone or despise someone. In this context, how the Jews use this word, hate was a comparative word which meant I don't love you as much as something else. For example, if I got my baby Jack on the floor, and let's just imagine I also have a puppy, and Jack's then they're rolling around, and the puppy comes and starts to growl at or starts to try to take a nip at my child. You know what I might do to the dog? I might kick the dog. I might boot that dog out of the room. Now, does that mean I don't like the dog? No, I love the dog. The dog's like my dog. It's a, it's a good dog. We might like the dog in any other circumstance. But when that dog is threatening one of my children, then I act. And if you were to just see me kicking the dog, you might say, hey, you hate that dog. I said, no, I just love my kid more. <laughs> I love my kid more than I love the dog. And now here, what Jesus is saying here is that you must hate your own life. This is what he's saying. He's saying when you compare your life aside from him, Without him, you compare it to life with him, you hate what you've done, you recognize it is nothing, it is far inferior to the life you have with Christ. You recognize that there's nothing that you've ever done in your life that matters outside of Christ. That all the trophies are trash. That the empire you've built outside of Christ is an empire of dirt. It means nothing. To be poor in spirit is to look at the works of our hands and say, rubbish. Count it all as loss. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. We need to be people who can admit failure, weakness, frailty. I think the biggest problem isn't that you're weak. That's, that's a byproduct of being a creature. Your biggest problem isn't that you're weak. But your biggest problem is that you think you're strong. I speak for all of us. My biggest problem is the delusion that I can, apart from Christ. Whenever we say, I can, without looking to the resources that Christ has offered for us, we're operating in a spirit that is not poor, because we're thinking that we actually have something to offer him. So we're freed to admit our own inability. We say we cannot. Here's the second application to our lives here. We're warned here. This, this statement offers a little bit of a warning to us. We're warned against faking it. 
We're warned against faking it because he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is to describe the deepest part of you, the core of who you are, you consider yourself to be poor. So this isn't referring to an external kind of humility, a kind of faux humility. Uh, This is referring to the deepest, realest part of you that when no one else is around, when you're even just in your own bedroom by yourself evaluating who you are, the deepest part of you says, I'm empty. So let's talk about a little bit about, about what poor in spirit isn't. Being poor in spirit isn't false humility. It's not false humility. Isn't it funny that the moment you think you're humble, what does that mean? It means you're not. <laughs> the moment you say you are, you aren't. It's one of those, those tricky, slippery ideas that as soon as you think you got a grasp on it, it's gone. Humility is tricky that way. As soon as we start thinking, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job being humble. In fact, I'm more humble than all of you. I'm the most <laughs> humble in the room. The moment we're going down that road, it says something's out of whack. Because we're not humble if that's the way we're thinking. And what's interesting is that sometimes we know we should be humble. And so we try to be humble without actually addressing the heart. We try to act humble. The way we talk and the Christianese and the language and we try to really, the affectation of our voices and the weird trying too hard spirituality, we try to become humble when really the heart's not humble. We just try to, okay, I need to be humble. I'll start acting humble. And the heart hasn't ever been humbled. And so we're just putting on a show, really. Isn't this the temptation for all of us? And pride can take a billion different shapes. It's a shapeshifter. And so you can be the most religious person and be the nicest person and it's all faux humility. It's not real. It's not poor in spirit. It's actually, I remember all through college, I really struggled with this. <laughs> I'm fooling you if I could say I'm done struggling with it. This is something that to this day, it is, it is part of my pride to be nice. Not because I'm genuinely loving you, but because being nice gets me something in return. What a shame. What an absolute shame. That we are so twisted by the fall. Our sin is so deep that we can try to be humble. And in our attempt to be humble, we are actually acting more like the hypocrites than Jesus. How often do we think pretty highly of our lowliness? It's sham humility. It's false humility. How often are we trying to impress each other with how spiritual we are? Sham humility. Wouldn't this be an awful place if all the time we're just trying to impress each other with how spiritual we are and no one is free to actually be who they are with the struggles they have? We're all trying to act like we have it all together. It's not something you wear or put on. It's genuine, deep, poor in spirit. It means you have an encounter with God and His holiness and the law has crushed you and you go down on your knees before Him, spiritually speaking, recognizing that you're empty. You have nothing. You have nothing to contribute to Him. You have nothing to commend yourself to Him. You look around and you see everyone higher than me. I have done nothing, deserve nothing except His condemnation, but by the grace of God, He saved me. And so I'm poor in spirit. It's not false humility. We're warned against faking it. Here's another, uh, another. Um, this is what porn spirit isn't. Porn spirit doesn't mean you change your personality either. 
we will sometimes try to manufacture being poor in spirit. And if you're a natural leader or you're naturally loud, you go all Eeyore and you kind of become a moper. Well, that's not being poor in spirit either. It's not those who are assertive suddenly become non-assertive. And this also doesn't mean that if you're naturally quiet or you're naturally reserved, that doesn't mean you're automatically poor in spirit. He's talking about a spiritual reality that's taken place, not something that's just kind of personality. If you're naturally more energetic, suddenly you become less energetic. That doesn't mean you're being poor in spirit. So how easy is it for us to put on these fake humilities, false humility? where we're just more trying to impress people, or we're more just trying to put on a smile and act like everything's okay. Sometimes these habits, let's be honest, can become so ingrained it's hard to know if they're real or if they're not in our own hearts. Our habits are so ingrained of just putting on a face. We tend toward flattery. We tend toward hypocrisy. We don't like sharing any issues that we might have because we don't want people to think more lowly of us. Well, how do we know if we are poor in spirit? There are a couple things you could think about. Maybe you could jot these down. How do you know if you're poor in spirit? Here's one of them. If you're poor in the spirit, your life is going to be promoting the gospel. The whole point of God's revelation to mankind, the whole point of his coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the whole point of his death on the cross and his resurrection is to humble humanity. Is to call us, call what it really is, call out the shots in terms of who we really are. And we have so exalted ourselves that God is saying, no, see yourself for who you really are. Humble yourselves. And the more we walk in pride, the more we're at a billboard that says, God is not great, I am. But the gospel shatters pride. So that we become a walking billboard that says, I have nothing. Christ is all. Christ is all. Our life, we will naturally speak about the greatness of Jesus because that will be the only riches we have. We won't have anything else to boast in if we're truly poor in spirit. If we're truly poor in spirit, we'll promote the gospel. Here's another way. If we're truly poor in spirit, we'll have strong relationships. Think with me about this. When was the last time you got offended? When was the last time you got hurt? in a relationship. Isn't it true that often we're offended because we see ourselves up here and someone treats us as if we're down here, right? And so when someone treats us as if we're down here and we see ourselves as up here, we get a little hurt. Don't you see how deserving I am? Respect me, treat me better, I'm up here. But wouldn't it be different if we were all poor in spirit and if we went like this and we saw ourselves as down here? And if someone treated us here, we what an extreme honor that you would treat me that way. Suddenly our relationships, we treat each other with honor and dignity and joy that we would be treated with any kind of love or fairness. What a privilege, what an immense joy that we could be ones who love each other. None of us deserve it. But sometimes we're seeing ourselves up here, and so we're really hurt when someone treats us as if we're down here. But if we're down here, and someone treats us as if we're down here, what do we do? We say, yep, it's about what I deserve. I'm okay with that. i got no problem with you treating me that way. And so a couple things happen when we actually become poor in spirit. We become those who love and enjoy the relationships around us because we feel pretty honored to be your friend. And we also become basically unoffendable because you can't treat me any lower than I already see myself. If you, 
If I see myself as a worm and you call me a dog, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> That's what it means to be poor in spirit. George Whitfield had this thing. He was a famous evangelist, and, and sometimes he had enemies. And the enemies would write these letters that were just, just accusing him of all kinds of things. And he would often reply. He had a reply. This is what he would say. He said, I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and many of my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love, in Christ, George Whitfield. So you got bad things to say about me? Listen, I got worse. And they're all right here because I know who I am. I know that I'm poor. I know I have nothing. So here's some probing questions to ask yourself. Are you easily offended? Are you quick to defend yourself? Are you often thinking you deserve better in your marriage or with your kids? You want them to treat you better because you deserve it? That's convicting. Because if we really saw ourselves as the lowest of the low, as the poor in spirit truly is, if we were that, we wouldn't see ourselves as kings lowing ourselves we would see ourselves as those who are at the very bottom being privileged to be friends with anyone in our church or family or community. To be loved at all would be the greatest privilege. Here's another way you might know that if you're, you're exhibiting true humility, truly of being poor in spirit, is that you'll be a true servant. You'll be a true servant. Because sometimes we do see ourselves like that king up in the mountains sitting on his throne and we go, I can serve these poor people and I'm going to go down and and I'm going to serve. I'm going to leave my lofty place and go serve. And I'll serve for a little bit, but then after I'm done serving, I'm going to get comfortable again in my nice throne away from the, the people down here. We can sometimes see ourselves as people who have our own little kingdom and we see anytime we serve we see ourselves as lowering ourselves but what happens if we're truly poor in spirit the people who are truly in spirit don't see service as something they're lowering themselves to the truly poor in spirit see something they're lifted up toward that they don't deserve that they get to do like i get to serve i get to be here what a privilege What an immense privilege that we are are called to love and serve one another. Think about this. If you're condemned to die on Friday, you're guilty, you're a convicted criminal, and Friday you're condemned to die. And then let's say by a strange twist of providence like Barabbas, you end up on Saturday morning alive. That somehow things change and you got called off the gallows and now you're here. And the king invites you into his court and says, not only are you completely and totally pardoned, but I got a job for you to do. Now you won't care what job it is. You will be thrilled to be alive. You will be thrilled to be put to use in whatever way that means. You will be saying, well, I'm alive. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm pardoned. And I get to serve? Whoa, I didn't deserve any of this. David said it like this in Psalm 84.10. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the sense of wickedness. I'll be a doorkeeper. I'm just here to open the door and close the door. If that's all you want me to do, that's all I do. But I see that as the highest privilege because I deserve nothing. And so we're warned against false humility. 
We're warned against false humility. We, we need to really see ourselves as this. And, so, and if we are seeing ourselves as poor in spirit, we will be servants. We will have strong relationships where we're not easily offended and we're easily uh, able to receive the friendship of anyone. We won't put on false humility. Here's a third application. Here's a third application of this reality of the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. We are reminded, we are reminded of the full gospel. We're reminded of the full gospel. He starts by saying the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. We got to camp on this for a little bit. One person has put it this way. The gospel condemns before it releases. You follow me? The gospel condemns before it releases. There's kind of a hippie gospel that's going around with this. You guys hear the hippie gospel? Jesus loves you. God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's it. That's the end. Nothing more. You just got to accept the love of God. Nothing about sin. Nothing about heaven. Nothing about hell. Nothing about the law. Nothing about repentance. Nothing about turning your life over to Christ. Nothing about the reality of sin. And all you're asked to do is just pray this prayer and, and God will, will save you forever. Welcome to the family. And this is kind of, you know, the love of God is true and real and good, but, but there's something half about that gospel, right? Uh, the gospel is not merely the love of God. There's a whole other side of the gospel that we need to make very clear. We've got to talk about the reality of sin. There was a uh, pastor on sabbatical this last summer uh, that I follow, and he, this last summer, he visited all kinds of different churches. And uh, he, he, he visited churches kind of outside of the ones you would normally visit, just kind of popular churches, ones that a lot of the people are going to these days. And uh, he wrote an article, and he titled the article, Lessons from the Worst Sermon I Ever Heard. And so after kind of compiling some of the thoughts of all the things he said, he said, here are my informal notes from the summer. And he had three observations about the sermons he was hearing again and again and again. Number one, he said this, less than half of the sermons mentioned that Jesus died on the cross. So you're seeing a, listening to a bunch of sermons, only half of them are mentioning anything about the cross. Secondly, he said, not once did any preacher explain what sin was or why we need to be saved from it. It's a tragedy. There's no gospel without that. Third, he says, not only once in three months did a preacher mention that Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, so the three things, did you, did you follow? Less than half are saying anything about the death of Christ. One preacher talked about the resurrection of Christ. And none of them said anything about sin and what it is and why we need a Savior. Now, I think the reason we don't talk about the death of Christ that much or the resurrection of Christ that much is just no one's talking about sin. And if no one talks about sin, well, what in the world do we care about what Jesus did? If there is no sin being defined, being described, and being pressed onto the hearers of the congregation, we don't need a Savior if there is no explanation of sin. And so this is what the Sermon on the Mount begins with, is that we need to be clear that the message of the gospel absolutely bankrupts us 
It shatters us first before it builds us back up. The gospel is not merely that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel starts with the bad news that you are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, who is under condemnation, and can do nothing about it in and of your own strength. That's where the gospel begins. The gospel starts by showing you that you're on the gallows. The noose is chafing around your neck. And at an undisclosed time, the floor will drop out from underneath you and you will die in your sins. That's where the gospel starts. It's not fun to talk about, but it's true and we need to hear it. And the glorious part comes next. That's the first part. It's not the whole part. If we only do that, then we're not preaching the whole gospel either. The gospel first confronts you. God confronts you. The law crushes you. You are emptied in completely before God with nothing and no hope. You're so low. And finally, you're low enough to realize Jesus is your only hope. And you go, Jesus in my place. He, he lived the life I couldn't live. He died in my place for my sins against the holy God. And he rose from the dead uh, and forever lives as my advocate. Now I can come to him freely and receive salvation. But if you have a half gospel, you're going to have half Christians, or better yet, fake Christians. The gospel condemns first, and then it releases. The gospel tears you down, and then it builds you up. And if we will be faithful, and if we will see real and legitimate conversions happen here, it will be because we're preaching a whole gospel. One that doesn't bat an eye talking about sin, but also doesn't bat an eye talking about grace. Free forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And it breaks us down. It reminds us we have nothing. Here's the last reality here. Is we're shaped by hope. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is theirs. Who's theirs? It's ours. He speaks to us all these years later. 2,000 years, he's speaking to a little church here in Rancho Cucamonga and Alta Loma. If you've believed in the gospel, the kingdom's yours. It's ours. It is our inheritance. And we Christians live with heaven like a north star. And we're going through these stormy seas and we don't know all the tragedies that might overcome us. We don't know the difficulties we're going to face. But God has said in his word again and again to set our minds on things above. And Jesus says, ours is the kingdom of heaven. That's, the, that's our true north. That's where we're looking. We don't deviate from staring at the true north where Jesus says, this is your kingdom. He's speaking to us. We can imagine a bunch of POWs in a concentration camp. They're awaiting their death. But they got a smuggled in radio. And imagine on that radio they hear... You're, you're, the troops have landed. They're, they're close and they're coming to set you free. They're almost there. Just wait another few hours and then soon you will all be released. What is the response of those people? There's laughter. There's joy. There's embracing. We're free. We're free. Our freedom is coming. And yet if you were to look around right in that moment, you wouldn't see anything different. They're still in the concentration camp. The only thing that's changed is the news has come. This is Christianity. There is news of a kingdom that's ours, that will be ours forever, that we will be fully forgiven, the sin will be completely gone, and the kingdom will come, and it will be ours, and we will rule and reign with Jesus forever. Jesus is come into the world. He's on the mission to save his people. He has conquered sin and Satan and death and hell. And now we look around and it all seems the same. 
seems like this world is, is getting worse and worse, right? And yet we know that the troops are around the corner. That Jesus will return soon. That the kingdom is ours. And then so we, our fourth point is, we are shaped by hope. Let us never, let us never become hopeless. There is a future that's guaranteed and secure for us. Heaven is ours. Let's be optimistic. Let's have joy. Let's embrace. Let's look forward. The Christians who do most in this world are the ones who think most of the next. And so we who come to Jesus as the poor in spirit, bankrupt, broken, totally empty, we leave with the promise of true blessing, true happiness. The kingdom will be ours forever. We're all different types of failures being saved by a never-failing Christ. Amazingly, he loves us. And so we move forward together even as we stumble along. Let's actually believe that blessed are the